Thank you so much, uh, worship team. Um, I, think it's, I think it's fair to give them a, a round of applause this morning. Okay. I, um, on the one day that I thought to go northern and real basic, they decide to do that. <laughs> and um, that's what I looked like when I was a youth pastor some 30 years ago. Um, but thank you so much. I, I am so, I'm so proud of you guys. I'm so proud of our youth ministry. You guys are, you guys are doing awesome. And uh, we, we just want to say that and want to encourage you this morning. Um, this morning, I'd like to invite our ushers forward. And we're going to receive our offering. And as we do um, receive our offering this morning, let me just kind of follow up a little bit on um, what we heard last Sunday from uh, Rose and Niall Tome who shared a little bit about um, what God is uh, calling them to, and specifically um, a, a bit of a relief project that he uh, is leading them to in Syria, their home country. And so if you were here last Sunday or you, you watched it online at some point in the week, um, you heard that uh, they are heading um, back to Syria in the next, next couple of days uh, to their home community, to walk alongside friends, family, community, to be of support and encouragement and help there. Uh, they shared that. Uh, our church family, being very generous and uh, kind, uh, said, how can we help? And so, um, you know, how can, we, how can we pray for them? How can we uh, help them financially? And so, um, so our Board of Elders approved a project, which is called Syrian Relief Project. And so if you would like to give specifically to that project, to their, to their support as they go and be a blessing to that part of the world in these tough times, um, you can do that in two ways. Um, by all means, you can give to them directly and personally. If God calls you to do that, d definitely do that. Um, if you desire a, so that's one way to do it. You can just, you know, pull them aside or, or you know, say, hey, I'd like to uh, give you a gift. Totally fine. Um, if you would like a tax receipt, um, then you have to do it a different way, and you need to give to the Syrian Relief Project. And so if you do it that way, if, whether it's by check or e-transfer or even just cash in, a, in an envelope, uh, you need to label that Syrian Relief Project. And that way um, we honor the laws of the land and we do things uh, with above, above approach. And so thank you for your, your generosity to them. I know that they are encouraged and blessed by it. And uh, if you have any questions about that, um, you know, please feel free to speak with Pastor Ryan after the service or myself. Or if you're online and you're watching this morning, just email us and we'll try and answer your questions uh, well. So uh, we, want to, uh, we want to look to God's Word this morning and uh, focus some time on, um, on uh, our next generation. Last Sunday, we, um, we spent time celebrating what God is doing among us, has done among us, and is doing among us. And we're so grateful for that. And we want to take a little bit of time last Sunday in preparation for our annual general meeting just to take a look at several things. God's doing a lot of good things. We focused on a couple of things. And this morning, <clears throat> as we look ahead, as we, think about, as we think about our vision, as we think about our mission to make disciples of all people, um, this morning's focus, as we think about our, our church family moving forward, I want to speak uh, into the value of our next generation, what is often termed next generation these days, and the importance of investing 
uh, in the next generation. Um, so when I say next generation, I'm speaking primarily of our, our young adult crowd, kind of mid-20s and downward to, to newborns. So this last year, I, I think I noted it last Sunday, you know, 12 new babies were born in this last, uh, this last little while in our church family. That's, uh, that's awesome, and uh, we're grateful for that. And so from, you know, early mid-20s downward is kind of what we identify as, as our next gen- generation. And two of our key priorities as a church family is discipleship and leadership development. So we have four priorities as a church family. Two of them are discipleship and leadership development. And sometimes we can wrongly think that making disciples um, is all about serving and reaching someone out there, (laughs) right? Like, uh, not necessarily kind of right before us, but somebody out there. We go somewhere to make a disciple of Jesus Christ. Could be Syria, could be Russia, could be, you know, the States or South America, but we can forget that actually um, there's people right in front of us. Um, we can also wrongly think that leadership development is only for those who are already the straight A students, right? So we, we look at the cream of the crop and we skim off of that to invest and pour into them, believing that those are going to be the people that we want to shape for, for the next generation of leaders, believing that God only uses the best and the brightest. But most of the time, most of the time, we really don't know how God wants to work and shape people. You might be here and thinking, yeah, that's right. You know, like, I thought, I thought he had this plan for me, and he chose a completely different plan, because God usually surprises us. Um, when I was a youth pastor, uh, there was a 13-year-old boy in my, in my youth group named Sean. This would have been, yeah, this would have been going back about 30 years now. And, um, and Sean was 13, but he was more like a 10-year-old in his social development and a few other areas too. Um, and so he was a very, very young 13-year-old in my junior high group. He drove his parents nuts. Um, his older brother was the, the stable, more reliable one, the guy that was kind of looked to to kind of make it, <laughs> you know, to really make it in the world. Sean, not so much. He had, a, he had a sharp mind. He asked questions no other kid was, was asking, but he was a total oddball, uh, and he had very, very few friends. Um, several years passed as, you know, as I kind of was in that youth ministry from, from age 13, and when he turned 16, um, his dad didn't want him to teach him how to drive uh, because he had no patience for him. So, so I taught Sean how to drive a car and get his license. Uh, he went on, he graduated from high school, and then he went, to, he went to Bible college. And after his first year of Bible college, I asked our, our board of elders at the time if Sean could serve as a youth ter- uh, intern for the summer uh, after his first year of, of college. And, and my board at the time, they looked at me sideways and because they've, most of them have been kind of like, They'd known Sean since he was a little kid, and they knew what they were dealing with. And, uh, you know, they weren't quite sure if this was a good idea. And in all honesty, uh, there were a few moments that I thought the same. Um, But they said yes, um, 
We survived the summer. He went back to college. I, um, over time, moved on to a different ministry. And then he graduated from Bible college after four years. He got married to a, a young woman in our church as well. And, and then Sean, was uh, together with his wife, was called into local church ministry where he served for nearly 20 years as a youth pastor for probably the first 10 or so, and then, and then as an associate pastor for another 10. And then wouldn't you know it, as of January 1st, 2023, Sean is the new lead pastor of his home church where he was the oddball teenager where nobody knew what to make of him. You just never know. You never know how God is going to work in people's lives, shaping them and developing them for his glory and his purpose, um, becoming a fully formed disciple of Jesus Christ. So this morning, when we think about the next generation and, and their value and, and investing in them, I want to focus on a familiar story in Matthew chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there with me. And, and this story, this, <coughs> it's quite a familiar story in Matthew 18. And it's set in a larger context where Jesus' disciples, they're asking Jesus, their teacher, about the kingdom of God, and they're getting a little arrogant, I think, and they pose this question to Jesus. Um, I, could be, I could be wrong, but I think there's some arrogance here. And, um, and they ask the question, who is the greatest person in the kingdom of heaven? And it was kind of like, it was kind of like a dumb question, um, especially to Jesus. Um, it's kind of like asking a hockey fan, do you think... Connor Bedard is going to get drafted this year, right? Kind of a dumb question. Um, what the disciples really wanted to hear Jesus say was that they were the greatest, that they were the most important people in the kingdom, that they mattered the most. And when we look at our world, that's how much of it operates. Who's important? Who's the MVP? Who's the CEO? Who's the top student? Who's the most productive employee or the, the, the best workplace to work for? Who matters? That's, that's a lot of what our culture kind of says. Jesus, he flips it on his disciples and he shares this story with them. And here's the story. Verse 1, Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, Jesus' response is really, really pointed to his disciples' arrogant question. Who matters in this story? Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, maybe you have wondered at times about this verse, because it's a little baffling, especially if you're a parent. What does Jesus mean about becoming like a little child? Because little children are not always the humblest of people, not to mention as they get a little bit older, adolescents and young adults. Sometimes they're self-centered. Right? Sometimes they're unreasonable. Sometimes they're just plain frustrating or, or obnoxious. And if you're a teacher, you kind of probably see a lot of this kind of stuff you know, every day in the classroom. You know, when I think about having no responsibility, as most children do, that sounds really nice, but does Jesus really want me to become like a little child? Well, let's, let's peel it back and understand a little bit of what's going on behind the scenes in the context. So, so first century Jews, they, they valued, so the culture in which Jesus is sharing this story, um, first century Jews, they valued children and they believed that they were a gift. They believed that they were a heritage from the Lord. If you had children uh, in their worldview, that was, a, that was a legacy. That was a, a real gift. But on a practical level, little children had little worth. They, they didn't contribute to the family income. They had never accomplished anything of significance until the boys began to apprentice with their dad as a young teenager. They were, they were completely dependent upon somebody else for their care. Um, at some point along the way, boys could be educated, but girls never were. Uh, distinguished rabbis, they wouldn't think of wasting their time on children, on teaching children. Uh, that's why on another occasion, when, when mothers brought their children to Jesus, the disciples turned them away. Jesus was an important person in their, their eyes. He was, he was a distinguished teacher in their culture. That, that teaching role was so highly valued. Why would he waste time with children when there were so many other adults waiting to see him, standing in line? So when Jesus brought this child to the front of the line and explained who is the greatest in the kingdom, this was not the answer that the disciples were looking for, and it caught them by surprise. Because in a culture, in a culture that saw things differently, Jesus was saying that young people, people of, of little practical worth in the eyes of others, had huge value and worth in the eyes of God. They were somebodies. Now, 2,000 years later, to some degree, our culture may be getting it wrong on the other end, where children and young people can be idolized, lifted up, championed to, to a kind of a godlike status. You can, you can be anything you want to be, you can do whatever you want to do, and, and we are, your mom and dad, we're going to bust ourselves to, in order to make it happen. That's equally not helpful. But if young people are valuable to Jesus, they must be valuable to us. Not idols for us to lift up, not for us to live vicariously through, but, but precious, deeply loved gifts from God as we guide them to become fully formed followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. Um, so when we look at our church family at Westwood, um, in our family currently, uh, as in our church family, 
we have about 183 children, grades five uh, and under, as a part of our church family and involved in some aspect of our, of our ministry. Um, we have about 80 uh, junior and senior high youth that are, that are engaged and participating in some measure. Uh, we have a, quite a sizable young adults ministry from post-high school to, to uh, mid-20s. And, and those three sort of demographic groupings currently represent about, about 35 to 40% of our church family. It's sometimes a little bit kind of tricky to find out kind of where it all lands, but, but, but it's kind of in that ballpark. And when I think about that as a, as a pastor, I go, wow, this is, this is great. We have much uh, for which to be thankful. But why should ministry with our next generation be one of our biggest discipleship and leadership development priorities as a church? Why, why would it matter? And in Matthew 18, I think we get a bit of a be better picture as, as to why this might be, and I want to kind of unpack that a little bit. When we think about discipling young people and, and shaping, uh, you know, next generation leaders, it is so important because children are most likely to make a commitment to follow Jesus. Um, Jesus, he says to his disciples, he says, whoever humbles himself like this little child. Now, to be humble, um, as I've kind of alluded to already from this first century Jewish perspective, is to be dependent, um, to not have anything to offer from an adult perspective. So humble people viewed this way know that they need help. And they're not afraid to ask. So what do our children ask of us? What do our young people ask of us? Uh, Mom, can you make my lunch? Or, or Dad, can you make my lunch? Um, um, you know, can you help me with my homework? I don't get this. You know, I, it's, just not, it's just not coming to me. Um, can, you, can you teach me to ride a car? Or, or, or rather, ride a bike or drive a car? Like those kinds of requests, they, they kind of roll off our kids' tongues. But so do questions like this. Um, Lord, would you help me not to be afraid? Um, God, would you please heal my friend? Jesus, will you forgive my sins? Uh, many of us as, as parents, as we've walked with our children, we, we, we get this uh, because we've walked alongside our kids. Young people are completely dependent. And so parents... I, I want you to hear me very, very uh, clearly on this. One of our greatest responsibilities as a Jesus-following parent is not to model the way of independence for our child. It's, it's not to kind of, you know, get them ready to fly out of the nest and then just to say, okay, you're, you're free, you're on your own, like sayonara, like, hope you do well, it, it is not to model the way of independ or independence for our, our kids. Rather, our greatest responsibility is to guide our child in transferring their dependence from their parent, that's us, to becoming dependent on Jesus, who's a far better parent than you or I ever will be. Jesus says, whoever becomes like little children, dependent not on themselves, 
but on Jesus, these are the ones who enter the kingdom of God. So when we think about the significance of this, we recognize that childhood and adolescence are perhaps the most formative years of a person's life, spiritually speaking. Can I ask a question of you this morning? How many of you who are followers of Jesus made a decision to follow him as a child or as a teenager? Just, would you raise your hand? How many of you wish that you had made a decision to follow Jesus as a child or a teenager? Yeah. Interesting, right? Research continues to say that anywhere between 76 and 85% of all Christ followers make their decision to follow Jesus before the age of 18, and that the vast majority of those decisions will be made before the age of 14. Psychologists tell us that moral and spiritual development begins at about age 2, and that by about age 9, many of a the foundations of of faith have been laid in a child's life. And that most of what a child believes at 13, they will believe for the rest of their life. Now granted, the university years can be really, really challenging. They can prove to be a huge battleground for faith, which is why the local church, I believe, must really, really be intentional about coming around that, that young adult crowd in supportive, warm community, giving space for the difficult questions and mentoring as an instrument of faith formation. But when we think about all these things, the window of time that, that parents and families and churches have, which is extremely critical to build the faith foundations of young people, happens between the ages of four and 14. Can can we begin to appreciate the weight of that awesome task? Do we feel the responsibility as a church? I, I certainly do. So in light of the next-gen crowd that God has entrusted to, to our church family, right? We're talking about Westwood Church family here. Let's, let's invite, let me invite us, let's, let, let me uh, call us to do the best job that we can with the resources that God has given us, whatever those resources are. Um, Researcher George Barna, he puts it this way. He says, if you want to have a lasting influence upon the world, you must invest in people's lives. And if you want to maximize that investment, then you must invest in those people while they're young. So as a church family, we have declared that we want to invest in the next generation through our formal staffing um, in the areas of children and youth specifically. And we're praying that, that God is, is preparing a youth pastor uh, for us. But, but i got to be honest, in the moment, it's a little discouraging. The pipeline uh, looks, looks pretty thin. Uh, it, it's going to require deep faith and perseverance as we trust in the Lord in this process. But even more important than that, we have to continue to um, look for ways to equip parents 
Uh, maybe it's single parents, maybe it's two-parent families, but we need to equip parents in their disciple-making process. Um, and I'll speak a little bit about this in a moment. As, as a university town, we, we have to continue to look for meaningful ways to walk alongside young adults, helping them to discover Jesus personally, and then to anchor their faith for the long haul. Um, that, those are critical, critical years. We have to continue to provide opportunities for the next gen to serve with us and among us, just like um, the youth band was doing here this morning. But that's not the only place that we need to be inviting them into. Uh, we need to in, be inviting them into growing at, at Bible camps such as, as Ness Lake and, and others. We need to support them as they go off to discipleship training schools and Bible colleges and universities as they walk in, in, with Jesus and grow their faith. But, but it has to go a lot farther than our formal ministry as a church family through, through um, budgeted dollars and kind of programs that we might run. The greatest factor in the faith development, in the faith formation of our next generation, depends largely with what happens at home. That is by far the most critical factor. In Canada, uh, James Penner is a sociologist at the University of Lethbridge, and Sam Reimer is a sociologist at Crandall University on the East Coast. Both of them have done significant work in this area, and their findings are remarkably similar. This is what they, this is what they find, sort of some high-level um, uh, research. If mom and dad actively pursue a personal relationship with Jesus, and so what does that look like? Oh, reading their Bibles in the open, like maybe in the living room, where their kids can see them, where mom and dad are serving in some aspect of ministry, maybe in the church, maybe in the community, but serving other people. Um, engaging in faith conversations with their children. Not being afraid to go to the hard places and to talk about the tough stuff. Opening their homes to their kids' peers and friends. Those kinds of practical things. If mom and dad are doing those things. If local churches intentionally are engaging younger people in the life and in the ministry of the whole body where intergenerational life and ministry happens, the chances they find of our younger people sticking with Jesus as they enter young adulthood increases dramatically. So even when we meet for lunch after the second worship service today for our annual general meeting, uh, there's going to be some kids there with us. There's going to be some youth there with us. They're going to eat with us. Yeah, some of them are going. They're going to, uh, you know, go afterwards, or they're maybe going to be cared for by some folks in, in the next room over. Um, but, but that's great that they're becoming a part of our community life. Who knows how God is going to work through these younger people? That's a great thing. It kind of sounds actually like, like God's word to Israel. When, if you, if you flip back to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, God commands parents and grandparents in an intergenerational context about following him. This is what he says. He says, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your 
foreheads as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So physical resources like pastoral staff and budget dollars and ministry centers to serve younger people, they're, they're awesome. They're, they're great. We need to be so grateful for, for what God has given to us here at Westwood. But a community, hear me on this, a community of people of all ages and all stages of life who love younger people and who choose to invest in them personally. That's going to trump buildings and budgets all the time. You may be single, you might be married. You might have kids, you may never have had kids. You have an opportunity to shape the next generation for Jesus. And if you're here and you've traveled these roads already and you have children and grandkids who've proclaimed faith in the past, but you've They've abandoned that faith, or, or it appears to be so. Or maybe they've never proclaimed a faith in Jesus. Hang on, hang on to the hope, because the story is not yet complete. Right? So we keep praying, we keep encouraging, we keep trusting that God continues to love them, and so will we. So back to our text, Jesus said, and whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. It, it kind of puts a bit of an end cap on what I've just talked about. That, that word welcome could also be translated receive or, or accept. It's a, it's a hospitality kind of word. Describing uh, opening your home to strangers and to visitors and receiving them. I believe that Jesus is saying that young people are so near to his heart that when you open your heart to a child, you open your heart to Christ making room for him. When we think about this, could there be a spiritual principle at work that when a church like Westwood makes room for young people, people who are so valuable to God that we also make room for God to, to move in fresh and powerful ways as we go about making disciples of all people. But then notice the warning that Jesus gives to us. Verse 6. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Those are Jesus' words. Not mine. Not anyone else's. That's what Jesus is saying. This is one of the most frightening statements, I think, that Jesus ever makes. He's saying that that those who put stumbling blocks in the pathway of young people, those who make it harder to know and to follow Jesus, they, they put themselves and their children in spiritual peril. To every parent, every grandparent, every adult, every pastor, every individual who has some kind of influence over a young person, let's be very, very careful that we do not create stumbling blocks for them. Jesus is not saying that children and youth will not sin. Oh no, they will, just like you and I will. Jesus is saying that we must not openly and knowingly cause others, cause children who believe in him to spiritually stumble and fall away from the Lord. You know what? That might be something as basic as exasperating our kids to anger. 
So what does Paul say in Ephesians 6? Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Don't, don't frustrate your kid. When my kids were younger, I, I struggled with having church life consume me, and I was not always present for them physically or emotionally. That was one of my stumbling blocks. For some, the stumbling block is, is pushing their kids to fulfill mom and dad's hopes and dreams, yet absent of, of spiritual guidance as they kind of shoot their kid along the fast track to success. Uh, some of you uh, might be transforming your kids into, into conspicuous consumers, self-centered folks who crave for more and bigger and better because it's been modeled in you. For some, you could be so overwhelmed at the cultural challenges before us, which are many, that rather than doing the difficult work of engaging with your children, guiding them in the narrow path to which Jesus invites us, you, you throw your hands up in despair, you go, I just can't do it. It's too hard, too difficult, don't want to go there. Church, we will someday be accountable for how we built up our children in the faith or how we created spiritual roadblocks for them to know Jesus. So we cannot neglect our responsibility to nurture the faith of the next generation as a body of believers. Jesus, he concluded this lesson to his disciples with a short story about a shepherd who left his 99 sheep to go off and, and search for the one sheep that had wandered away. It's a story that, that communicates God's love for, for lost people and his readiness to do anything it takes, to go to any length necessary to rescue them, even to the point of sending his own son to seek and save them at the cost of his own life. But this time, when Jesus shares the story in Matthew's gospel, he adds this twist at the end of the story. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. So to every parent here, every parent watching engaging online today, every grandparent, every family among us, when we think about making disciples and we think about shaping leaders, developing them, our primary responsibility in the area of these, these priorities begins at home. As long as as our children are under our care, we are called to guide them, to encourage them, to pray for them. We're called to kind of cultivate this, this soil <coughs> where they can know the person and the truth of Jesus. It's, it's super daunting. It's really, really big. But you know what? You're not alone. I'm not alone. Our church family needs to be in this together. We need to support one another. Because we can't do it alone. We have to do it together. To each, each one who finds themselves in this, in this stage of life and, and the responsibility is ours, let's keep going. The work's not done yet. God's not done. What he's started, he's going to complete because it's his work. And we need to hang on to that. We need to hang on to that, especially if, if our kids aren't necessarily showing interest in Jesus or they're not walking with him or they have in the past and they've abandoned him. Let, let's not give up 
because God's not giving up. Let's, let's work at it together. It, maybe if we've been slacking or negligent as a parent or, or if collectively as a church family we've been dropping the ball, maybe thinking, well, we've got we to gotta go out there while we're forgetting about the, 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 the people who are right before us. Well, let's, let's confess that. Let's start fresh today by embracing Jesus' call not to make idols of our kids, but to pursue um, forming them to become disciples of Jesus who will carry the spiritual baton to their generation and to their kids' generation and to their kids' kids' generation until Jesus comes again. Let's stand together as we pray. Loving Father, thank you so much that um, you love us deeply. No matter where we're at, what spot we find ourselves in life, you, <coughs> we just hold a, a real, real close and special heart, place in your heart, and we're grateful for that today. Father, we thank you in a special way that you've given us children and, and youth and young adults uh, to be a part of our church family. We just do not take this for granted. We, we are so grateful and we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us in this incredible mission endeavor to um, guide them in the, the, the person and the truth of Jesus. We can't do it alone. We need you. We need your spirit. We need your word. We need one another. We need encouragement. We need support and care and listening ears. So, Father, would you guide us today? And uh, we just commit ourselves to this incredible work, a work that you've called us to. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people together said, Amen.